Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. Warm popovers and sweet lamentations. <laughs> Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox and fluffy kittens and sleepy dogs. We are here to do a Space the Nation first, which is an interview with Charlie Jane Anders. We just dropped the episode that's a review slash discussion of her book, Victories Greater Than Death. And I want to welcome her to the show. Welcome. Yay. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to be here. Long voyages and safe returns home. You know? <laughs> oh, that so was awesome. Yes. That's yeah, great. I love just, this. It's, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you for coming up with your own royal fleet blessings. <laughs> that was that made me so happy. I can't even tell you. That's just like, oh, my God. There are several kind of sparkly bits to your book i would say that i like they're like little like blings <laughs> yes you know? there was some of that yeah <laughs> and i think that the greetings are one of them mm-hmm. it's like a little yeah. extra bling added to the story so we have a lot to talk about just in terms of the book but in case people don't know you mm-hmm. you have been kind of at the vanguard of i want to say like nerd sci-fi geek culture for a long time like <laughs> As long as I've been, I've been just I've been out front because I've been trying to run. They they (laughs) catch up with me. I'm going to be in trouble. (laughs) I'm like, it looks like I'm leading, but actually I'm just trying to stay ahead of them because they are all running after me with pitchforks. Well, I'm I'm curious about two things. One, if you wouldn't mind, so I don't want to miss anything. So if you wouldn't mind doing like a recap of like where you got, like how you got here previously on Charlie. Yeah, previously on Charlie Jane Anders. Because I I know I know you as a writer. I know you as IO9. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, really sort of cliff notes of like my life as a writer up till now. I was a kid with severe learning disability who had a special education teacher who really took me under her wing and kind of helped me to use creativity to to get past my barriers at school. And that just launched me on this path of being a writer. And, you know, and I did a bunch of other stuff. I was an Asian studies major in college for the most part. I also was kind of an English major for a little bit. <laughs> I went and lived in Asia for a while. I worked as a journalist in Asia, and then I came back and worked as a journalist in the States. At a certain point, I decided that my life and my career was going to be writing fiction and that, you know, everything like journalism was going to be my day job. And that was, and then sometime after that, I got hired to work on this site, io9, which was part of Gawker Media, you know, pouring one out. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and that sort of, got me into this dialogue with science fiction fandom in a whole different way that was really delightful and awesome. And meanwhile, I was still chugging away with my fiction. And, you know, eventually I started actually like after way too long, after years and years of trying and scratching at the door, I did kind of break in as a science fiction writer. I won the Hugo Award for a a short story called Six Months, Three Days. And then I published this book, All the Birds in the Sky. And now I have this young adult book out and I'm about to publish a book about how to get through rough times by telling stories, by making up your own stories. And that's called Never Say You Can't Survive. Wow. So, so wait, you have this book, which I believe just came out, correct? Or it is it, April. Yeah, it's it came in out April. in April. And you have another book in the pipeline. As an academic, I have, all I can say is fuck you. Um, <laughs> just in, in the sense I mean, that, that normally like, people... Yeah. Normally people are mad because it takes me like two to three years between books. And mm-hmm. I think right now people are going to be mad because I'm like just through random life stuff. I have a bunch of books coming out in the next couple of years. Like I've got the How to Survive by Making Up Stories book. I've got a short story collection in November. And then I've got the next two books of the trilogy. Plus there's an adult novel that I'm trying to finish right now. So The the book about writing as survival or surviving by writing is Never Say You Can't Survive. Never Say You Can't Survive. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
And I also think that's a value that I've seen you bring, you know, to, to the social media that I interact with you on. And I think in the writing too, the writing itself. And I wonder if, if, if that's something you hear, hear from, I mean, I assume that people tell you about that in their lives. I mean, sometimes, yeah. I mean, I think that we're all, you know, I think we're, we're all in this ecosystem where we're trying to kind of encourage each other and keep each other going because we all know that we're all struggling. And, you know, I think that the good part about being in the creative writing world is that we are all intensely aware that, you know, we're in this together and that we have to kind of support each other or we're all going to go under. And, you know, there is the other dark side where sometimes people get competitive or they're like, oh, my God, so-and-so got a cookie. That means I didn't get a cookie or whatever. <laughs> but I think for the most part, we're all trying to support each other. And, like, you know, I just try to – honestly, I like to think that I'm helping other people to keep going the same way that other people are helping me to keep going, you know? And it's, it's kind of reciprocal. And that value comes across in this book. Yes. You know, this is a very team oriented book. There is a hero who you kind of subvert a hero's journey a little bit. I'm going to talk about that. Yay. Oh, God, I was um, really trying to. But also, I want to tell you that one of the reasons we chose your book at this point in time is that we're having hot sci-fi summer. And ah. we're doing it because we had a, a run of books and movies that were dark, dark. <laughs> Oh, we like we, we talked about like the movie Children of Men, and then right after that, I think we did Octavia Butler's Kindred, and right. then, then we did The Power, which the is power. not exactly uplifting. Yeah, it was. It was, <laughs> we, we after that we were like, okay, we got to reset this. We need some hot sci-fi summer. So we wanted to choose some stuff that was either funny or uplifting. Yes, and so I decided we'd have you as part of our roster. I was so honored to, to be that for you all. And like, really, I'm glad that I could do that or that I could be a part of that. And, you know, yeah. The highest praise I can offer this book, which is not something I have said about any other book I've read, is that I'm going to make sure that my 16-year-old daughter reads it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> that is so, I, that means a lot to me. You know, the book is, it's for everybody, but I really hope teens will read it because yeah. I feel like that's kind of the audience that it was aimed at. And like, and if she doesn't read know. it, I will call her a space butt. <laughs> Dan, I'm going to let you ask some questions. Thank you very much, Anna. So, Charlie Jan, you've written previous uh, sort of adult novels. This is your first YA novel, and it's going to be part one of a trilogy. I guess the most obvious question is, did you, first of all, you clearly consciously were writing this as a YA novel. Did, you know, did you have to approach it differently as a writer? Oh, yeah. I mean, stylistically, right. in terms of the pacing, in terms of like, Especially for this first book, I really wanted there to be a really strong first-person narrator voice that kind of comes through that's like, feels like someone that you could hang out with a little bit that's mm -hmm. like, that kind of comes across as like having a personality on every page. And mm -hmm. that was something I really struggled with because it's, you, you don't want to like come across as like fake or like that picture that people always post of Steve Buscemi where he's like, hello, fellow teens, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yes. And, How do you do, uh, fellow you don't kids? Do that. <laughs> yeah, and like... That was tricky. Like, I actually spent a lot of time looking back at other YA books and just being like, okay, how do they do it? Like, how do they... I'm a big believer in in respecting, if you're coming into a, a, a space, respecting mm -hmm. what's already there and kind of not... I think that sometimes people are like, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing and I'm not going to... I'm just not going to worry about what other people have done. And I feel like you have to do your own thing, but you also have to be aware of what is already there because you have to, like... Uh, but also the pacing, like, and there was a draft of Victories Greater Than Death that I handed in I think sometime in 2018, 
that was very different. And especially the first like 100 pages were very different. And my editor was really like, look, it's too slow to get going. There's too much stuff that's kind of extraneous at the start of the book. I had this idea in my head that I really wanted to establish Tina on Earth before Mm -hmm. I got her into space. And Mm -hmm. so there were versions of that book where you spent a lot of time on Earth with Tina at school before she got into space because I wanted to establish her as a character. And my editor was like, no, no, we got to we got to get going. We got to be in space by like chapter four or five. Get that orbital funnel down. We're not going to wait. Yeah. (laughs) People are not going to wait for that. And she was 100 percent right. And I think that was made it a much better book. I had like there was some fun stuff. Like I had a whole thing where like they're learning about the Monroe Doctrine in Tina's school. Well, I have to ask, does this mean it's set in the U.S.? Oh, 100%. I mean, I mean, <laughs> Tina's mom is described as like a Midwestern Presbyterian. Like, it's definitely in the U.S. I, I kind of deliberately... Yeah, we weren't sure. It was like, we weren't... We kind of thought it was the U.S., but there were a lot of U.K. place names, or it could have been U.K. place names, interesting. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, it's definitely the U.S., yeah, and okay. I like, I, you know, I kind of modeled it very loosely. Like, I didn't want to give it like a anchor it too much to mm-hmm. a particular place in the U.S. because I felt like, I don't know, I just, I felt like it was better if it just felt like it was anywhere USA, kind of, the way Springfield in The Simpsons is just kind of right. anywhere. And also, uh, make, frankly, but, it makes it easier to leave Earth that way. Yeah, it makes it easier. And in general, like, that was the thing I kept getting back is, like, don't make us too attached to the, all this stuff on Earth because mm-hmm. then we're going to leave it behind and we're going to be like, why did we get so attached to that? Right. Now it's gone. But yeah, I kind of loosely based it on, like, Raleigh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I lived for a while in between being in Asia. And it was like, you know, you've got like, basically I have like the tech campus that I keep talking about. Like this is, there's a lot of world building that I came up with for Tina's hometown, which is barely in the final book because I cut so much of that out. But it's a town that's like kind of got a poor side of town where Tina lives. And then there's like a side of town where there's like this giant tech campus where all these tech startups are and that's there's a lot of money over there and so i was sort of thinking about research triangle park and certain parts of like that area that are maybe not as you know so i was just thinking about that and some of the places are very loosely based on places i used to hang out in north carolina i appreciate that there was sort of the gestures towards setting it you know in in a specific place but i've always assumed i guess i'm always assuming we're going to go back at some point like we'll see you her know? mom again at least yes I mean. Anna and I really liked her <clears throat> mom yeah oh I, lo- I like her mom too and I actually I wrote some short stories about uh Tina's mom and how Tina's mom came to adopt this alien baby <laughs> and how she finally told Tina that she was an alien and it's kind of more about the mom and I read them on Instagram live if you go to my Instagram oh, they're still oh, all there okay. in my Instagram TV at some point I forget what we're gonna do with them we're either gonna put them in the paperback of victories greater than death or maybe we're gonna have them as like a bonus thing if you order the second book mm-hmm. you get this little booklet of these stories about Tina's mom but I actually had a lot of fun writing Tina's mom you know I don't want to give too many spoilers but I feel like I want to mostly follow these characters in space and I feel like oh. This is, I guess, a huge spoiler, but I always had this idea that the third book ends with them coming back to Earth. And that's like, they come full circle at the end of the book. Like the third book. That's that's, that's good. Yeah. I I guess what it means, like, I always assume we'll we'll come back to them is because you get, it's almost like you get a amuse-bouche with these characters. Mm -hmm. Like, you're like, (laughs) you're like, oh, that's that's a lovely, lovely little sketch of a person that I hope I get to know better later. But let's talk about how, how, you know, slam bang, the book kind of opens, because this is where we get into sort of the subversion of the hero narrative, right? It's a total YA trope. Some young person is secretly great, right? right? Like, that's the 
thing that the hero's journey. And Tina is secretly somebody else. She's secretly a hero, right? But one of the first ways that it kind of becomes different than most stories like that is that she doesn't really know, like she's just a, she's a clone. She's not actually, she, how do I put it? Her identity she has is to partial. become yeah her identity is partial yeah like she's sort of told oh yeah you're not really the person like you're gonna have to become the person which is tough like that's a that's yeah hard. I I love how you put that I hadn't thought of it quite that way before but it's really true I th- and I, I love that and so it was, I guess go ahead no I was gonna say one of the things I liked about it is that at one point you know you're she's about to have her neural blockers removed or what have you and and it only partially works. Instead, she becomes space Wikipedia. But I remember feeling sad as I was reading up to that, thinking, wait, no, I like Tina. I don't want, you know, it, it felt like a total recall thing where it's like, wait, I like Quaid. I don't want Hauser. I want to get, you know, let, let's stick with Quaid. And so, you know, that was, I was very <laughs> pleased to see that, that we wound up sticking with Quaid, as it were. And I'm just curious, like, how much, like, I, I am sure you are intentionally kind of, you know, mucking around with this very classic trope. And mm-hmm. I wonder what your intentions were going into it. Like how you wanted to yeah. do it differently. It was something that I really like. I had this idea. Like I started literally with the idea of like someone who is secretly an alien hero, like stuck on Earth. That was like my fantasy when I was a teenager <laughs> is that, you know, aliens would come and get me and be like, actually, you're one of us and you're awesome. You're secretly this awesome alien hero. And here's your awesome starship. And you're going to go off and like fight the bad guys. And that was all I wanted. And so I don't know. I mean, that was a thing that was kind of trial and error where I was like, I got to that part in the very rough kind of cruddy first draft. And I was like, okay, so what happens now? Does she get all the memories of Captain Argentian back? And then she has her own memories, but she also has Captain Argentian's memories. Is that it? Is like, she going to just have like two different sets of memories in her head now. And I tried, I think I tried writing a little bit of like how that would be and how it would be like, okay, is she going to be in charge of the ship now? Or is Captain Othar going to step aside and let her be the captain mm-hmm. now? Is that what's going to happen next? And that was, there were some interesting possibilities in her getting all her memories back and just like suddenly having this whole extra, but it didn't feel like a YA book anymore. It didn't feel like a book about a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like a book about a much older person stuck in a teenager's body. <laughs> and it also just, it felt like a lot of the energy got sucked out of the book at that point. It just, it became more standard space opera or more standard kind of just like, it didn't feel special anymore. Yeah, it short circuits, so the, okay. it, it short circuits the journey. I mean, in some ways, yeah, this, is about, really does. this is about Tina's journey. If, if she's suddenly it's like, oh, here's the cheat code, go ahead. And like suddenly it wouldn't really work the same way. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, so she clearly can't get back all the memories because that would be, that would just ruin everything kind of. So I hit on that compromise, which I actually thought was really fun. And I was sort of thinking about it initially in terms of like, this is a good metaphor for how we all are all the time. We all have access to knowledge and information with no real context behind it. You know, (laughs) thanks to, and you know, I was like, if you grew up, with access to like the internet as it exists now with access to smartphones and and iPads and stuff, that's going to be even more the case. I was on the internet from a pretty young age, but it was not the internet that we have now. It was an earlier version of the internet. But, you know, we all of us have this thing where we know more than we understand, I think. And that's actually a thing that somebody says to Tita in, in the second book, oh, you know more than you understand, which I think is like a really good way of summing up our condition nowadays like that we have we have actual wikipedia at our fingertips we have like just like a flood of information anytime we want to know everything about a particular topic we can do that but you know we don't necessarily get 
the context or the reasons why things are the way they are. We don't. Yeah, I think you have a sentence you know, in, in this one from the captain saying, like, knowledge lack, knowledge without experience or knowledge without wisdom is the most dangerous thing. It'll get us killed or something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I thought that that was actually a really useful thing to think yeah. about. But also, yeah. So but the thing of subverting the hero's journey kind of came along. You know, that was like a thing that I kind of felt my way towards because I, you know, I never wanted Tita to be just a total jerk who were like, oh, God, I hate Tita. I wish she'd stop being such an arrogant jerk. And like, I didn't want it to be like hitting you over the head with a sledgehammer. But I always thought about like trying to kind of question specifically the thing, like a thing that I'm now getting a little bit deeper into the process and I apologize. But the thing that like when I had that earlier draft where we spent more time on Earth, a thing that I really kind of explored on Earth was Tita trying to protect other kids from bullies and constantly being like, I'll protect you. I'll, you know, get behind me. I'm going to protect you. And maybe sometimes the other kids would be grateful, but maybe sometimes the kids would be like, I didn't ask for your protection. Mm. And by doing this, you're making me a bigger target. And you're letting people know that I can't pretend myself. And you're actually not being as helpful as you think you are. And so that was the thing that I kind of took with Tita into space, which I think is still there in the final book. It's just a little bit more subtle now of the thing of like, you know, is it better to protect other people and to be like their savior yeah. or is it better to like team up with other people and you can all protect each other kind of. And so that was a thing early on. As the IR professor, I have to say that like that was actually one of the things I really liked about the book was that dimension of like the royal fleet. You know, it, it turns out you learn that the royal fleet had intended to defend particularly non symmetrical creatures and so on and so forth. And what you actually see is a really interesting somewhat tarnished legacy where they tried and in some cases failed or tried and then had to get distracted because of their compassion. And the most interesting thing was that the species themselves sort of look at the royal fleet and say, no, we really don't want you to protect us necessarily. We want to protect ourselves. And we, we do appreciate the effort there. And we're, we like, we're not hating you either, but like, let us do our thing. And, and said so it was an interesting way of, of putting it. Yeah, I yeah. think there's a theme in the book about mm-hmm. that balance between you know, respect and treating mm-hmm. people how they want to be treated and but not condescending to them. Right? Yeah. I I do think that that's something that kept kind of like bubbling up. Like different aspects of the book kind of reinforce that. Yeah. Like things that I just came up with on the fly. Like we're always gonna know everybody's pronouns. We're always gonna have the correct pronouns. <laughs> and we for do people. want to talk about that. Yeah, though. we had a question about that. <laughs> okay. Yes, yes. And we're gonna like respect people's space and not hug them if they don't want to be hugged. Right. And we're gonna like yeah. you know, I feel like that thing of respect keeps kind of coming back in different ways. And it's a thing that I really was thinking about a lot, especially in that first book. I felt like it was a thing that, you know, and, you know, again, getting back to, I feel like I haven't talked this much about before about like the earlier draft that I threw out, but the thing of like where Tina's in school learning about the Monroe uh, doctrine <laughs> and like she keeps calling it the Monroe, the Monroe initiative. Like, she's like, the Monroe initiative. And it's like, no, it's not. It's, it's the Monroe doctrine, but whatever. She just keeps calling it the Monroe initiative because she, you have know, to write that part or give cool. Dan. You have to give Dan. You got to give me that. Draft. I got to have that in another draft. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I want to see And, that. like, people are finally, like, and, you know, I was like, well, maybe people later could be like, you know, the United States wasn't necessarily, didn't have the right to set itself up as the protector of all these other countries. And, you know, so that was too heavy handed, I think. And it was too much of me, like, imposing my own. But that was kind of, in, that was in the back of my mind, for sure, in this book. But it's all over. I mean, I, I love the way it sort of echoes through a lot of different things. It, it echoes through the actions of the Royal Fleet. It echoes mm-hmm. through Tina, right? It echoes through how the other, you know, other characters treat each other. It's like, how can you respect what someone wants? 
and also not assume anything about them. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, like the pronoun thing is a great example mm -hmm. of exactly where that boundary, exactly where that boundary is, right? I wanted to ask you first of all about that. I read an interview you did where you talked about how, you know, when it comes to sort of the social justice-y aspects of a book or of a, of a novel, kids need their hands held less than adults, oh. right? Like they don't. I mean, they don't need to be talked through the social justice part. I'm guessing is what you're saying. Yeah, I actually, I think I, I got a little bit of flack recently for having said that. I think that you know what I meant to say was that, as somebody who's writing books about trans and queer issues for adults for a really long time, I do sometimes feel like I bump up against this thing of like, adult readers. I don't know. I worry about adult readers, especially nowadays with so much you know, really blatant transphobia out there, I feel like I do have to kind of at least think about, you know, the adult readers. And I, I guess what I was getting at is that the teenagers I know nowadays, especially when it comes to queerness, are just in such a better place than when I was a teenager, for sure. When I was a teenager, it was actually really bleak. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm sure it's, it's really scary right now with all these new laws and everything. But at the same time, I know so many teenagers, like just personally, I know so many teenagers who are openly queer or trans or non-binary or gender fluid or you know gender queer and it's just like it feels like there's this acceptance and this kind of comfort with that that definitely didn't exist when I was a teenager and I definitely have more interactions I would say with adults who are kind of like staticky about it than than with with other with teenagers so I feel like I was excited in this book to just it's hard for me to separate my personal journey as a writer from like going from adult fiction to YA because I feel like even apart from like the fact that I was moving into YA I was also just like moving back into writing more frankly about queerness and it mm -hmm. obviously we're at a time now I was just talking to Andrea Lawler on Instagram live and we're at a time right now where books like Detransition Baby which are really just putting it out there and really kind of brave are getting a lot of attention and acceptance which is feels really new to me mm -hmm. and obviously Andrea wrote politics the form of a mortal girl which also got a lot of attention very justly and so I don't know I think that you know partly it's that in general we're all having these conversations more and partly it's that I just for personal observation have found that teens are just super comfortable with a lot of really like open and unapologetic queerness which makes me really happy and so I felt like those two things came together to make me just want to just go for it in this book and just particularly on the pronoun thing, I think the best way maybe to ask this question or to, or to put this feeling out there is that I assume, and I, but I'd like to first hear from you, that the pronoun, see, I don't, I don't know what quite what to call it. Every single character in the, the book introduces greeting. themselves with their pronoun, including the bad guys, which yes. I loved, <laughs> absolutely loved. And for me, as an adult for whom pronouns are still kind of an evolving lesson, like I'm still having to like re relearn, mm -hmm. you know. I found that to be at first it was kind of it how do I put it? It, it it landed as a little funny, right? Like literally, I was like, oh, that's huh, you know. And I assume maybe for kids it's not funny; it's just a thing, right? But I mean, there's that one part where they meet somebody who's like, I'm Captain Skog, and. You know, my pronoun is she, and I'm going to kill you. Yeah, and that's what I like. Yeah. Yes. That's, that is literally funny. Like, <laughs> okay, that's funny. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, funny. But I also kind of thought about how 
there is sort of a grand tradition in science fiction of using, you know, alien context to kind of shine a light on what we consider weird and mm-hmm. what other people consider normal. And so I, for me, that funny but not funny tick of always having pronouns reminded me that, oh, yeah, in another galaxy, that might not be weird at all. Like, on yeah. some other planet, that's just what they do. It's not like we all have to use our pronouns now and everyone has to use our pronouns and we're all learning to use pronouns. It's just that's how you... That's the norm. The same way you say your name. It's like saying hello. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the fun of writing this book was coming up with like interesting technologies and interesting like ways of doing things that I hadn't necessarily seen before. And so there's so many things in the book where I was like, well, I've seen it done this way in a bunch of space operas, but we're going to do it differently because I want to keep this new and different and fresh. So there was a lot of that where I was just trying to avoid kind of rehashing and trying to come up with things that I thought were fun and interesting and kind of wish fulfillmenty or aspirational. And it just made sense to me that like if you have a universal translator, which is called the every speak in this book, you know, if you have a thing that can translate any language into any other language, it's going to make sure there are no misunderstandings, which means <laughs> that we're going to know everybody's pronouns. And I'm car- I actually was pretty careful to have, I think Yato says at one point in this book, some people hear this pronoun spoken out loud, some people don't. And in book two, we get POVs from characters who don't necessarily hear the pronoun spoken out loud. They just kind of get a mental awareness of the person's pronoun. Huh. It's just like they, when they meet someone, they just know that person's pronoun through like osmosis. And like, that's another way it can work because I feel like it works different ways for different people. But I felt like in the first book, it was really good to have the pronouns stated out loud because it just made it really clear. And there's actually in the second book, minor spoiler, there's a character who uh, from Earth, one of the Earth characters comes out as gender fluid and realizes that if they concentrate hard enough, they can reset the pronoun on their pronoun. The every speak will tell people is their pronoun. So they can wake up and be like, well, today I'm using he, him pronouns. And everybody they meet will use he, him pronouns Hmm. without question. If you, and it actually says, if you try to use the wrong pronoun, it just won't let you. It'll just, (laughs) it'll be like, oh, that was a miscommunication. I'm going to correct that before anybody hears it. And so nobody will hear that you said the wrong pronoun. It just won't even work. And I, f- I feel like that's a, a wish fulfillment thing for me, the idea that, like, <laughs> there's no way to misgender somebody. There's just, it's not even possible. That fits in with a, a metaphor that I used to describe the novel when Dan and I were recording our discussion about it, which is it reminds me a little bit of, like, when kids draw their dream house. And, and here is the ice cream parlor in the basement. And here's the racetrack that spins around the whole house. And here's the fireman pole. And of course, like the rainbow Skittles are real. It has all these cool things that you want to have in it. It's just also in this novel, there's still problems. Yeah. Like you have your dream house. You're living in your dream house. But, you know, fights break out. People get mm-hmm. their feelings hurt. Oh, yeah. But it's like in your universe that you've created... A lot of the stuff that would be things that a lot of us would want to have in the world that don't currently exist in the world, like no one ever getting misgendered and people always asking before you get touched. Right. That's just norm, you know, mm-hmm. and you can concentrate on other shit like <laughs> you can worry about saving the world. It's easier to save the world, maybe, or universe, if you don't have to worry about people not getting you, Right. Yeah, I mean, that was what I felt. And like, you know, I feel like I wanted this book to have a lot of wish fulfillment in it because I love like that kind of 
escapist wish fulfillment storytelling. I feel like there's a reason why most of our really popular media things have a huge dose of wish fulfillment because we all crave that. And I think it's actually a really healthy impulse, but there has to be darkness. There has to be complication. There has to be like, if it's perfect wish fulfillment, if it's just like, okay, everything is now wonderful forever. That's a really boring story. (laughs) And like, there has to be stuff that's like getting in the way of that. And I think that, you know, a lot of my favorite, you know, it's kind of escapist narratives of the last few years are the ones that have actually dealt with real darkness. You know, Steven Universe mm-hmm. actually got really dark at times, despite being a really fun, cute show. And ditto for some of those other shows. I was curious about something. You talked about how you wanted to, like, do stuff you sort of different from other space opera. And there's a lot of, like, throwaway stuff here. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I mean, like, just sort of one-sentence things where, like, wait, I want to know more about that. I've got one in particular I will ask you about later. But the thing it reminded me of, the style it reminded me of a lot, was sort of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I was wondering if that was one of your influences. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of, of Douglas Adams, and especially the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I have, I have a signed photo of Douglas Adams near my desk that my parents went and saw him. I forget. I think I was sick or I was, I can't remember, but my parents went and got me his autograph. He came to a bookstore and they went and got me his autograph. So, you know, very nice of them. And I still have it and it's right there next to my desk. I'm a huge Douglas Adams fan. And I'm just like, he's a, a ginormous influence on me. And I feel like one of these days I'd love to write something that's just straight up like Adams esque (laughs) kind of madcap humor. Absurdist. Yeah. But yeah, absurdist. I mean, that is a big strategy by writing in general, but I always kind of try to temper it with other stuff because mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, the, I'm, I'm not Douglas Adams. But. And the other thing I can so the, the one quibble I had, or like, you know, it, this was an interesting innovation in terms of the tech, but both Anna and I were sort of curious how this would actually work, which is the holographic goo to operate the computers. <gasps> oh, that, yeah. That I, I, where did that come from? And like, I, that just doesn't sound terribly functional, but like, I was sort of curious what the idea behind it was. You know, what was the idea behind it? I think it was like, I'm really sick of the user interfaces we always see now. Oh, like everybody has been just doing like, yeah. you know, Minority Report or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's been doing Minority Report forever. Everybody's been doing like certain uh, things. Anna has a bugboo about she hates keyboards in space. Anything related oh. to a keyboard in space drives her nuts. So this was not a keyboard. We, yeah. you know, I was, I, it's an improvement it's on a keyboard. keyboard. Yeah. The fact that QWERTY keyboards apparently exist... 500 years in the future <laughs> seems wrong to me. It's the power so, of path dependence, you know, but yes. This, <laughs> this was definitely an improvement on that. So okay. I appreciate it. And I assume yeah, like, I yeah, mean, gestural stuff is because everyone, no one speaks the same language. Right. Like how else can you have an interface? Well, but I mean, why goo? That's that's the thing. It was that the goo d- part. Dan <laughs> the holographic thing we got. That I was mean, fine, but it was the It was, was a goo. combination <laughs> of, it was a combination of feeling like, once something's like once you have holograms that are solid enough to touch, which is like kind of the minor, minority report yeah. thing and a bunch of those other things, then they ought to have a, some kind of tactile feeling to them. They ought to feel like something. They ought to like not just be nothing. And I think I just thought of the goo because it felt really cool and different and weird. <laughs> and I thought kids might like it. Like the idea that like, ooh, you're sticking your heads into like a thing of jelly, yeah. grape jelly. And it's like, ooh, I'm getting sticky goo all over my hands. It just felt fun and different. And like, I definitely spent a lot of time, like I started working on these, this trilogy back in like 2016. Mm. And I spent a lot of time just being like, what can I throw again ideas of like, 
stuff that was like just changing things up from the traditional space opera. And I think the goo was just, it was gross and weird and funny, I guess is what I would say. I thought it was just a way to get kids off screens. Like, you know, this is, you know, you only have to, you, you're going to use the monitor. Sure. You can do that. But like, you know, it's, it, there's a cost. And so maybe you don't want to be on it too much. Um, well, speaking of goo and yes. unpleasantness, I have to ask about the weapon rounds weapon. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, which oh my gosh. We're, you know, spoiling and also just assuming everyone's read it. So it, it but I'll say, so it turns you into goo, which is gross mm-hmm. already. And it turns in, you into soup, basically. It turns you into like soup. You. Uh, and it also ruins people's memories of you. Which was like, legit did, innovative. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And where did that come from? That came from, like a lot of the stuff in this book came from me just like really kind of thinking about my teenage self. And me, like in this case, it was like, what was my teenage self afraid of? Like more than anything. And... You know, I wanted to, like, come up with, like, a way of inflicting death that wasn't, again, wasn't, like, something I'd seen before that felt different and a little bit weird. And I just, I think that, you know, I remember when I was a teenager thinking a lot about, like, if someone murdered me, but, or if I died and nobody knew how I died, or if somebody murdered me and made it look like an accident. For some reason, that really worried me. Like, the idea that I, not just being killed, but being killed and people not knowing what had happened to you was something that I thought about a lot when I was a teenager for some reason. And the more I thought about it, the more that just kind of morphed into, like, what if you knew that when you died, people would not have anything nice to say about you Mm -hmm. or, like, people would only hate you? And, like, that just felt really scary to me on, like, a really fundamental level because it's, like, and I feel like the more I kept poking at that, the more it felt like it tied into the book's themes in general because the whole theme of the book is having a legacy and, like, having something that lives on after you're gone and having something that you can, you know, even if you're not going to be there, something of you, you will still be there and you're, you're going to have contributed in some way. And just this idea of like, nope, everybody's going to hate you. Anything you were involved with, they might just not appreciate anymore because it's connected to you. It's just like, it felt really intense and dark and scary. And it also really fed into who Morant is, which mm-hmm. is that he's someone who can't get people to love him and he's just like full of self-loathing and so he's just like well if i can't make you love me i'll just make you hate everybody else i'll make you hate the people you do love Hmm. and i feel like that actually made sense with him i was thinking it it, it may and i've just added my own philip onto this the way it fits in with the rest of the book is that one's legacy is a huge theme just overtly and there's also this kind of dance about the way we assume things about history like the, the way we interpret not just individuals' histories, but whole civilizations' histories. And we use our own lenses to look back. And sometimes we get that shit wrong, right? And Moran's weapon is a good, is like a real dramatic example <laughs> of yeah. getting the past wrong because something in the present changed your point of view. There's a thing that I play with in the second book a lot, which turned out to be really kind of, interesting to play around with is that there's this split among like the main characters between people who were there when when so captain othar the captain of the indomitable is killed by morant Mm -hmm. and you know turned into a puddle and the people who were present when othar was killed are basically like well screw that guy he was garbage right like we hate him and the people who were on the ship they were far enough away or maybe they were shielded by like some of the solar 
radiation, whatever. I don't really need to get into the, the, <laughs> d- the details of how yeah. that works. The people who are on the ship still remember him fondly. And there's like an actual real split between those characters in the second book because the ones who can still remember him fondly want to be able to remember him fondly. And everybody else is like, oh no, that guy sucked. And like, it's actually really hard. Even though half of your friends, even though those guys are consciously aware that they are suffering from the effects of Morant's weapon, but the pro- they obviously they're not comfortable. With, they don't. They just don't want to have to think about him. Which is, yeah, yeah. They're just like, oh god, can we? Can you just shut up about that yeah, guy? Like, that's interesting. Don't you know? I, like it's hard. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask a question about. This book has a really interesting approach to, I guess, for lack of better, putting it violence in terms of, or violence that is justifiable. So one of the things I liked is that Tina does inherit, apparently, like, you know, space military skills from Argentian, and she's pretty good at it. Like, you know, she gets the gun and and goes on a badass, you know, killing spree at one point, which is absolutely necessary because, you know, to save lives and so on and so forth. What was interesting to me is that you wind up, that sits with her in a very uncomfortable way, and in the end of the, the novel, she winds up, you know, deciding she wants to be a non-violent member of the royal fleet, if, that, if I'm getting the terminology correct. Yeah. Yeah, but but I, I guess the thing that I liked is that it wasn't that... It's very easy in these kinds of books to sort of, not exactly, well, glorify violence or glorify action, as it were, and to make it really, like, the interesting stuff is the the space battle and so forth. And it seemed to me, and, and I really I do want you to correct me if I'm wrong, is that what you basically we're trying to say here is that there are times where in fact violence is necessary you're you're fighting an evil force you actually are going to have to use force to counter that but we don't have to be happy about it and if people don't want to go along with that that's okay too yeah i mean i i feel like that was the thing that came as a huge surprise to me like i got to that part of the book and honestly this was the thing where i was just writing a bunch of I was like, okay, at this point in the book, they're having a bunch of adventures and we're just going to have them having a bunch of adventures and we're going to just show them bonding and lear- mm-hmm. learning to be better space heroes. And that was basically all that I had in mind for that part of the book. And then, you know, I wrote that part where she, Tita, you know, takes the gun and shoots some people and kills some people. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't fully prepared for the aftermath because I as when I was writing it I was like oh okay this is actually no this is not going to be okay mm-hmm. this is something that's going to hit her really hard and it's turned out to be a huge turning point in the story because that whole thing of like she's been told that she's you know inheriting this great hero's like kind of legacy and she's that's all she wants is to be like the second coming of this hero but it's like oh you know what that includes having to kill a bunch of people and that's part of the legacy that you're inheriting and that you have to like glob onto and I I I felt like it was actually really an interesting thing for Tina and actually a really powerful thing for her to really question that and to be like, is that who I want to be? Is that the life I want to have? Is that, am I willing to like live with being a, you know, being a killer mm-hmm. and finally deciding, you don't know, I don't want to do that. And like, um, it is something that, especially in the third book of the trilogy, we're going to keep coming back and kind of questioning as things get really bad. It's like, are we willing to really stick to that when, there's like life and death situations yeah. all the time. I feel like I I was really thinking about the way that a lot of these stories do kind of treat certain people as as disposable yeah. and it's like oh you killed like 100 guys but whatever they were we didn't know their they names. were bad they were, guys they were henchmen they we were don't just need to worry about them. bad yeah. guys and like like the stormtroopers just get gunned down everywhere in Star Wars it's like mm-hmm. and nobody stops to think about oh but if they had families what if they 
I don't know. What if it's he just, was a stormtrooper to get like... through college? I mean, I'm sure that was probably what, part of the reason why people joined <laughs> the stormtroopers. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's. I think it's worth thinking about. And like, I wanted to kind of to question that and to like, I feel like. Violence should always be like a very last resort. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the thing in this book is that they've been fighting this war against the compassion forever, and it hasn't really accomplished anything. Mm-hmm. All this fighting has not gotten them anywhere. And so I was just like, you know, hmm. maybe there's another way. I don't know. And so I think that that's, I'm still writing the third book, and I think I'm going to kind of really delve into that a lot in the third And I would book. say also, actually, interestingly enough, it's possible that the real Argentian, as it were, like based on what we've seen from the logs, might have actually approved of Tina's decision because Argentian by the end seems pretty sick of what she has become and genuinely questioning her life choices, I think it would be safe to say. So it's an interesting inversion because, you know, Tina spends most of this novel saying, I've got to live up to Argentian, I've got to be this great person, I've got to be this great person. And there's a part of me that kind of wonders if Argentian at the end looks at Tina and is like, wow, I wish I was a little more like her. And I have to say that that's, um, you know, a little on the nose metaphor for growing up. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's on the nose that you tended to be on the nose, but that's what happens with us, right? Yeah. Like we think we're supposed to be this one kind of person and we, and we think of adults around us right. as being like, oh, I guess that's what you're, how you're supposed to be. And we have this image of what adulthood is like you know, mm-hmm. and what the ideal adult oh, yeah. might be. And then we realize, oh, fuck, like, <laughs> there is no instruction manual. <laughs> like, I don't have a specific path to follow, right? Like, I'm going to have to find my own way in the universe just as me. Yeah. As a parent, one of the toughest things is when you were like, you are going to have to find your own path and you have to, like, get your hands off the steering wheel and then close your eyes because you don't know how this is going to end. <laughs> Right. I I can only imagine, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like that is the coming of age story. The coming Mm -hmm. of age story is kind of realizing that the adults around you have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) Role models are kind of deeply flawed and that there's never going to be easy answers. That it's not going to be a thing where it's like you're going to figure out like the solution and oh, yeah, I figured it out. Now I've like come of age and everything's perfect. And I've, I've made sense of it. You know, I feel like the usual way you would expect a story like this to go, I think, is that you would start out thinking that Captain Argentian was like a perfect hero who was amazing. And by the end of either the first book or the third book, you would be like, okay, Captain Argentian was actually a monster. And like, she was just like a straight up terrible person who, you know, had no redeeming qualities or, you know, we had a few redeeming qualities, but was basically like a selfish, evil monster. Mm-hmm. Spoilers, sorry, but like the way that Steven Universe has kind of <laughs> ended up dealing with with, you know, Pink Diamond, a.k.a. Um, God, brain, uh, Rose Quartz. Sorry, that was a huge spoiler for anybody who has not yet watched Steven Universe, and I apologize. But, you know, and I feel like that's the, the traditional arc is like, not just that your role model is flawed, but that your role model is, is fatally flawed and really terrible and really made horrible choices. And like, I didn't want to go that far with Captain Argentian. I felt like it was actually more interesting if she remains mostly an admirable person like the end of the book you're like okay she was clearly a good person who tried to do the right thing but she's not like this perfect icon Mm -hmm. to be like emulated she has regrets i want to just thank you personally by the way for the rachel needing alone time yes being a little neurodivergent and like having some like overload issues which i definitely can identify with and just 
and that she's still cool like still still great and it's just kind of normal like oh yeah that rachel needs some alone time every once in a while so yeah i love rachel <laughs> i she's she's probably my favorite character in the book and i you know i didn't think of her in as like neurodivergent as such which i think is partly because i don't think of myself as neurodivergent and i think you know other people might consider me neurodivergent <laughs> and i could be very outgoing for periods of time and then i have to hide for like a long time from the world and people see me being outgoing and they don't always see the kind of like now i'm gonna be a hermit <laughs> uh part so i think people don't always know that about me or understand that about me but it is a thing and i felt like that was the thing that was really important to me is to just represent that like heroes can be all kinds of people heroes don't necessarily have to be like tina they can be like rachel mm -hmm. or they can be like elza or they can be like kazaya and i thought that was a thing that i really wanted people to get from the book for sure so we're getting our last questions i have two very quick trivia questions and then a, a more substantial one so the two trivia questions first of all who launches the nuke from earth or does it matter like, <laughs> did you, did, I, I was just curious Ooh. Had you thought about that? or like That's a really good question. Somebody IR on professor wants day, to know. I, I had to know. Yeah, it's an IR <laughs> professor. I gotta, okay, oh, so which, which country launched the nuke? I was thinking the U.S., but somebody the other day was saying it would probably be Russia. Like, they were like, Russia would have the launch capability. They probably have a, a rocket lying around that they could, I, that they could get up in the air China, quickly enough. China might actually be the one that okay. you would consider. Just, just putting that out there second uh question and you don't have to answer this but i'm hope i want to know if it appears later in the trilogy what is the yarthin prayer of not dying oh wow it's definitely referenced in the second book okay again. good because that is just a, it again the that was book. the most douglas adams thing in this and i just love that name i know <laughs> that, awesome. that that's definitely coming back okay, i don't good. think i ever like spell out what the Yarthin prayer of not dying is. Maybe I will in the third book. I don't know. Which If you could just write it down for Dan, yeah, I think that's I I want to tell <laughs> our patrons that like maybe, you know, like one of the benefits is that we could tell them what the Yarthin prayer for not dying is. But this actually does lead into the last question. Yes, which is, um, I guess in terms of the rest of the trilogy, it sounds like a lot of the cake has been baked. Like how close are you to completing it? And like to finishing what's happening or like how much is like there still possibility for change? So the second book is like 95% done. I'm doing one more pass. I have to get it back to my editor. Like I told her August, so soon. <laughs> I have to get back to her soon. And so the second book is basically done. It's at this point just tinkering. And the third book, I've written about, I want to say 35,000 words of the third book so far. Hoping to get that done in February or March, get it to my editor by, by February or March, which is... A lot sooner than it sounds like, especially for me, because I like to spend a lot of time noodling. But the good thing with the third book is that I came up with a really, really solid outline. I think, you know, I'd outlined the first two books, but I think the third book, my outline is actually something I'm going to be able to stick more closely to, mm -hmm. at least for the first pass. And I think it's coming along. I'm having a lot of fun with it. I think the third book is definitely the most fun to write, because at this point, I'm not really establishing anything new. I'm just like knocking over dominoes I already set up. Oh, that's great. And maybe we can wrap up with this question. Uh, Dan and I you know, do this podcast that's about international relations and space. That's not really exactly it, but I get to talk about how much I hate capitalism a lot too. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and, Dan, and Dan gets to roll his eyes. We also have some specific sort of series that we do. One is called Schlock and Awe, and the other one is called Cannon Fodder. And I wonder if you have recommendations for those series. So schlock and awe is like, can you recover something that seems schlocky? Schlock right? or awe, like, to be fair, yes. Oh, sorry, schlock or awe. Yeah. So like the pilot for the first Battlestar Galactica, 
we did that. It's like, is that schlock or is it actually kind of awe? Right? And we're going to do the David like Lynch. Like the 70s? Yeah. yeah. And we're going to do the David Lynch oh, wow. version of Dune soon as well before in, in advance oh, of the wow. Dennis yeah. Villeneuve one. And then for Cannon Fodder, we did Ender's Game, mm-hmm. you know? And we did. <laughs> um, and did we do Left Hand of Darkness as Cannon Fodder? I think we did. We did, although we, we, oh, just, yeah. we decided it was canon. Although we decided that was canon. Yeah, yeah. That, actually, I think we decided. We, so far, we've actually said everything is canon. And we did. And we did. Caveats. We did the novel Dune as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, so for Cannon Fodder, I would definitely say, you know, look at some Ian M. Banks, like consider Flebos. I would say, I don't know, look at some Nalo Hopkinson, like Brown Girl on the Ring, or. I don't know, Sister of Mine. Um, I'm trying to think of other stuff. I mean, I'm a huge Doris Lessing nut. And I always, and it also, uh, I would say, you know, maybe look at Geek Love by Catherine Dunn oh. is the thing that's part of my personal canon. Mm-hmm. And obviously you already were talking about Octavia Butler. Yeah. So as far as schlock and awe, wow. I mean, Maybe Legend, the like oh. mid eighties fantasy movie starring yeah. Tom Cruise, might be Jennifer something you could look yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. That's a yeah, great that suggestion. I like that. That's good. I'd be curious to see what you all make of Time Bandits at this point. Oh, oh. Yeah. although Time Bandits, I don't think of as schlock, but that would be good. No, but it might be all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Time Bandits is a. I haven't rewatched it in a long time, and I'm a little scared too. I don't know how yeah. it's going to hold up. On the schlock side, it, which is actually something kind of tied to your uh, book, would be the Last Starfighter. Yeah, Last Starfighter. That's true. And I, I, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that movie. <laughs> I think we might up doing Foundation as cannon fodder, too. Oh, uh, yeah. That might be in there. Good timing. Yeah. 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 Charlie Jane, thank you so much. This was delightful. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. It was so great getting to talk to both of you. And thank you so much for taking the time to read Victor's Greater Than Death. It means so much to me. I really appreciate it. I think it would be safe to say we look forward to having you back when the the second book in the trilogy comes out. Do we know the title of it, by the way? The title is Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Yay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.